Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be taking a look at Zora Neale Hurston's uh, some of her collected nonfiction writing. So this is the this is the conclusion to this the series on Zora Neale Hurston's nonfiction writing. And yeah, I thought long and hard about, about it, and I'm not going to look at her fiction writing quite yet. I'm going to kind of put that on the back burner. Instead, I'm going to, after this, be moving on to looking at a, the works of a historian, Francis Parkman Jr. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's, I think it's like eight books, depending on how you look at it. But it's basically the Oregon Trail, which isn't a history. It's a kind of a memoir of his experience in the Oregon Trail, followed by uh, his first work, major work of history, uh, History of the Pontiac Revolt. Uh, which happened co- coincided with the American Revolution, and then we have uh, his massive, like three thousand page, multi volume uh, history of of France and Britain and North America, which kind of culminates in the history of the Seven Years' War, but it goes all the way back to the earliest settlements, uh, French of the creation of French Canada. It's a really interesting uh, survey. So, but it's going to take us a long time to get through that. Uh, and I hope you're up for it. I hope you're interested in maybe something a little bit uh, different. We've done political writing. We've done fiction um, of various types. But we haven't done history, really, except uh, inadvertently when it kind of showed up, like we like with Zora Neale Hurston's uh, book, Tell My Horse, which had a little bit of history in it. But this is um, this will be a chance for us to look at one of America's earliest professional historians. Um, and that... I'm not sure. It depends on what volumes I want to bring to China. Right now, I'm, I'm in Taiwan. I have a little bit extra time in Taiwan because of the the virus, the plague that broke out in China while I uh, while I was here. It's gotten a lot worse in China, and so they delayed my return to work a week. So I got a little more time here. So I'll start getting into that, and then you know, it just depends how many books I want to bring to China. Whether I will bring uh, Henry Adams. I, I that's another though massive historical series of historical works his history of the jefferson madison years it's also another like two volume two thick volumes of the library of america collection so another three thousand pages or so but that's another uh really outstanding history and it's another example of early american historical writing that that's you know kind of at that level of of literary history so but at the very least we'll look at francis parkman jr i think i'm also going to bring with me john kenneth galbraith so we can throw in an economist's point of view, a very different kind of work, uh, his work looking at, you know, an example of mid 20th century economics. So I don't know, uh, I'll just kind of decide maybe last minute what books I'll bring with me to China, but at the very least I'll, I'll be looking at Francis Parkman's um, work. But anyways, on to Zora Neale Hurston. Actually, the conclusion of this series on women writers, we looked at Willa Cather, looked at uh, Zora Neale Hurston, obviously, we looked at some science fiction writing, uh, Jane Bowles, uh, Mary McCarthy. That was a big, long series, of course. So Shirley Jackson. So a nice collection of, of 20th century uh, women writers from America, but time to move on, I think. We, we've kind of spent enough time with 
with these ladies. But anyways, um, what's left in this series um, or in this collection? Well, we looked at three books, three of her nonfiction books. I think these are her only three nonfiction works, uh, book-length ones. Mules and Men, Tell My Horse, and Dust Tracks on a Road, her memoirs. And um, we have what well, we have here are 22 articles and essays that were published during her, you know, while she was writing, which is really 1926 to, to the, you know, she wrote until the 1950s, but her career was more or less kind of drawing to a close by the, you know, by the early mid 1940s. So, um, and of course, as I mentioned, I think last time she died pretty much forgotten, impoverished, she was working as a maid, you know, not really that well-known or well-respected. Uh, that, of course, is not an uncommon thing for, for writers. You know, think of someone like Melville was kind of in that same same situation. Um, but, yeah, we got 22 articles here written across uh, across her career. Um, now, two of these are actually kind of multi-parts. So um, six of the 22 are from one anthology that she contributed to, like a it's kind of like an encyclopedia, and she contributed six articles to that um, anthology called Negro, an anthology, just a collection of writings about uh, black people. It was just an anthology, a kind of a popular anthology that people would buy, and it deals with various aspects of black culture, folklore. Uh, and then we have uh, five of these. So that's about half of all the of all the essays we have in this little collection here. It's about a hundred pages long. Are from from the Florida Federal Writers Project, which is a, you know a subset of the WPA, the you know the Federal Writers Projects, you know in which unemployed writers, professors, edu educated people were sent to do various projects, and hers was you know kind of more folklore stuff. So um, many of these essays are are dealing with different aspects of folklore stuff. She talks about in Mules and Men, but she's a little bit more concise and direct in how she approaches them in some of these essays. I think they're really kind of interesting. Uh, and then we have stuff about some of her racial politics, a little bit what we talked about last time. Um, and, and I will spend time talking about her final essay, at least the final one included here. I think it is the last one she wrote, which is called Court Orders Can't Make Races Mix, which is her, her response to the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And she infamously um, was... Had had complex thoughts about about uh, desegregation. We've already kind of seen her thoughts a little bit about Jim Crow in the last episode. So, anyways, what do we have first here? We have first the Eatonville Anthology. The Eatonville Anthology was uh, published in 1926 in a journal called The Messenger, and it's kind of fascinating, actually. I I, I actually recommend this little piece just for just for, just for the laughs. It was written over three issues. September to November 1926. And altogether, it's 13, 14 different vignettes um, of life in her her hometown of Eatonville. And I'm not going to say too much about them, except that they... Well, I'll read, I'll read one or two, because some of them are quite short. But they, they're just really nice and interesting slices of life that she, from her memory, things she collected about that. I'll, I'll just read one of these. So, again, an idea of the kind of issue she deals with in this anthology. Um, quote, Becky Moore had 11 children of assorted colors and sizes. She has never been married, 
but that is not her fault. She has never stopped any of the fathers of her children from proposing. So if she had no father for her children, it's not her fault. The men around her are entirely to blame. The other mothers of the town are afraid that it's catching. They won't let her children play with her. And another one. Uh, again, these are all pretty short. Um, Coon Taylor. This is the sixth one. Coon Taylor never did any real stealing. Of course, if he saw a chicken or a watermelon or a muskmelon or anything like that, he would... And that he wanted, he'd take it. Some people got used to got, get mad, but they never could catch him. He took so many melons from Joe Clark that he sat up in the melon patch one night with a shotgun loaded with rock salt. He was going to fix Coon, but he was tired. It was hard work being a mayor, postmaster, storekeeper, and everything. He dropped asleep sitting on a stump in the middle of the patch. So he didn't see Coon when he came. Coon didn't see him either, that is. Not at first. He knew the stump was there, however. He had opened many of Clark's juicy Florida favorite on it. He selected this fruit, walked over to the stump, and burst the melon on it. That is, he thought it was a stump until it fell over with a yell. Then he knew that it was no stump and departed hastily from the parts. He had cleared the fence when Clark came to, as it were, so the charge of rock salt was wasted in the desert air. During the sugar cane season, he found he couldn't resist Clark's soft green cane, but Clark did not go to sleep this time. So after he had cut six or eight stalks by the moonlight, Clark rose up out of the cane, stripping with a shotgun, and made Coon sit right down and chew up the last one of them on the spot. And the next day, he made, made Coon leave his town for three months. So not no analysis, no interpretation, just little, little slices of life about African-American, the African-American experience in the South, as she recalled. And maybe some of these are fictionalized, but I don't get this. I think they're drawn from life. Um... So great stuff, but it kind of hits hits at what her whole approach to folklore, which is kind of study people where they are, study these experiences in a in a very matter of fact way, and and get you know deep into a society, even if it's a little bit ugly or dirty or conflicted, and and she's interested in individuals. That's another thing we saw in throughout a lot of her work. Um, the next essay was published in 1928. It's called "How It Feels to Be Colored, Me." And this was in the World Tomorrow, uh, a, a, a newspaper, a journal. And this, this gets a little bit to her, something we talked about before when we're looking at Zora Neale Hurston, is that is, she didn't really feel black until later because she was in this all-black community. There really wasn't color. That's her interpretation of places like Ettenville. Now, obviously, she's not denying that blacks in other contexts do feel color from a very young age, but she, she denies having felt it. She writes, um, I was not Zora of Orange County anymore. I was now a little colored girl. I found it out in certain ways. In my heart as well as in the mirror, I became fast brown, warranted not to rub nor run. And she says this just as basically as she got in the riverboat at Jacksonville. That's when she became colored. There's that moment when she kind of, and, and it took being like crossing the veil, I guess, as Du Bois might have said. But she doesn't like pout about it. She goes on, I am not tragically colored. There's no great sorrow dream, damned up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. I do not belong to the sobbing school of, of Negrohood who hold that nature somehow had given them a low down dirty deal and whose feelings are all hurt by it. Even in the helter skelter skirmish that's my life, I have seen that the world is to the strong regardless of a little pigmentation more or less. No, I do not weep at the world. I'm too busy sharpening my oyster knife. And that, I think, really sums up her, her, her racial attitudes. I don't think they changed significantly in the 14 years between this article and her publication of Dust Trucks on a Road, because she kind of has the same idea. She even later says, at certain times, I have no race, I am me. 
All right. She's not saying I never have race. She's she's obviously aware of race um, quite significantly, but she wants to emphasize the individual and the individual experience. So a lot of here about identity and her own identity and to the degree that race plays a role in her identity. Um, so this is followed by, and I think these, these are chronological, by the way. So I'm just going to follow the order they are in the book. Um, we have, I think it's six. Let me double, let me count again, just to make sure. Yeah, six articles in this anthology called Negro. It's called Negro and Anthology. That's the full name of it. She wrote six articles for this. Uh, so this was published in 1934. And what are they? Well, they're all about black culture. So I'll kind of deal with these as a group. Uh, the first is, I think, the most interesting of these. And it's called Characteristics of Negro Expression, where she's looking at various aspects of, of African-American vernacular speech, speech patterns, uh, ways of speaking, ways of using language, whatever. So if you're interested in African-American vernacular English, it's evolution, it's politics, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's history. I would really recommend reading this little essay by Zora Neale Hurston, because that's what she's really interested in. And she, you know, she talks about other things as well in here, but the focus is on speech. Then we have Conversions and Visions, uh, which is about religion. Uh, we have one called Shouting, which is also about religion. It's about the kind of the call and response aspect of religion. And, and she's got a very interesting point of view there, which I'll get at in a minute. She's got one called Mother Catherine, who is a African-American religious figure, which I didn't know anything about. I didn't know this existed, but she says a few words about it. We have another one called Uncle Monday, which is a, a similar kind of black um, figure of folklore local but, re but more recent folklore as we saw in mules and men she believes that black folklore is kind of alive it's a living tradition it's not just dead it's not just dead stories that get revived and remembered it's actually something that's being changed and mother catherine and uncle monday are more recent inventions and then we have spirituals and neo, neo spirituals and again she thinks spirituals are not just old dead plantation songs that are still sung she thinks of them as an ongoing expression of, of culture so Anyways, um, the longest of these, and I think the most interesting is the first, the characteristics of Negro expression. And here she, she brings up like 10 different aspects. And I'm not going to go through them note by note. But um, one thing, for instance, she mentions like uh, the role of mimicry and mimicking whites and white speech and uh, mimicking others, kind of like a little bit of jazz in, 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 in speech. And how that plays a role in creating this new, this this vernacular language uh, as it evolved, uh, you know, throughout the experience of slavery and after. Uh, she talks about adornment in, in in language, and this is great stuff. She talks about the use of simile, of metaphor in the language, things like uh, um, syndicate syndicating instead of saying gossiping, or um, cating along. Uh, fatal for naked. These are actual words. Sobbing-hearted. This this kind of uh, exaggerated metaphoric language. Uh, the double descriptive she mentions here as well, such as sitting chairs, uh, lady people killed dead. These are other. Um, I haven't heard some of these terms used, but they were used apparently at the time that she was writing this. And my favorite were the verbal nouns like funeral lies. Uh, juking, ugling away, you know, turning these nouns and adjectives into into verbs. Um, so this this kind of adornment of language is something she's interested in. 
And she talks a little bit about dance, um, asymmetry in art, the various cultural heroes. Uh, some of the things she covered in Mules and Men, like the role of John Henry, the role of Jack the trickster, the role of the devil, the role of God. Um, but maybe I think one of the more uh, striking aspects of her analysis here is her thoughts on imitation. She writes here, The Negro the world over is famous as a mimic, but this in no way damages his standing as an original. Mimicry is an art in itself. If it is not, then all art must fall by the same blow that strikes it down. When sculpture, painting, acting, dancing, literature neither reflect nor suggest anything in nature or human experience, we turn away with a dull wonder in our hearts at why the thing was done. Moreover, the contention that the Negro imitates from a feeling of inferiority is incorrect. He mimics for the love of it. The group of Negroes who slavishly imitate is small. The average Negro glories in his ways. The highly educated Negro the same. The self-despisement lies in the middle class who scorns to be... Uh, to, to do or be anything Negro, end quote. So a really great, uh, I think, approach to this issue of mimicry. Of course, many cultures mimic, borrow, uh, steal, adapt, um, concepts, values, cultural tropes, whatever, from others. I mean, think of Japan, right? Constantly borrowing different things from other cultures. But it's not slavish mimicry. It's, it's an engaged mimicry. And I think people who study culture are quite aware of this, but I think she's kind of... Uh, you know, making at a time a very important statement about um, the originality of mimicry, right? Because Constance Rourke, who wrote a book called American Humor, which has been a while since I read, and it's not in the Library of America, but maybe I'll throw it in and look at it at some point because it's really interesting. But she's got a chapter about the black minstrel. She's got she she builds off three archetypes. It's like uh, what's the first? Uh, brother like kind of the uncle sam character brother jonathan i think it's called uh the black minstrel and the frontiersman these are the three archetypes uh that are the foundation of american humor interview now this book was written in the 30s by the way but when it comes to the black minstrel she often she also talks about this mimicry right and the version i have has an editor who doesn't scholarly essay before this saying well you know other people have since pointed out that this is not mimic, they're not mimicking white so much as mimicking, or no, it's white people are mimicking black people, right, in the minstrel show. But she points out, this editor anyways, that this mimicry is kind of a double-fold mimicry because black people were often making fun of whites in their mimicry. It was a, it, they weren't mimicking just as, a, as a, in a slavish way. They were mimicking in a proactive way and in an often humorous way. And then when white people mimic black people, they were kind of in a, in a weird way making fun of themselves. That was the point. Um, maybe I'll get at that. I, I think it might be worth looking at uh, American humor sometimes. But anyways, um, a bunch of little vignettes in this article called Characteristics of Negro Expression. Um, another one I want to talk about here of these articles is the third one in this anthology that penned by Zora Neale Hurston. It's called Shouting. And this is kind of part of a couple essays where she looks at religion. And she makes two points about shouting, uh, which is uh, a part of this religious expression, part of the, the religious service, right? It's that, it's that give and take, call and response aspect of it. The first thing she says about it is it's an African survival, right? We've seen that before in her view of African-American culture as having many, many African survivals 
that have endured. Uh, she says, There can be little doubt that shouting is a survival of African possession by the gods. In Africa, it is sacred to the priesthood and acolytes. In America, it's become generalized. But the other thing about this is, it is at the same, both individualist and collective at the same time, right? And I'm whenever I think about this, and I've thought actually about Murray Bookchin a couple times, I mentioned him before in a previous episode on, on a similar issue, is, you know, Murray Bookchin had this idea that individualism must be birthed in strong communities and strong, strong societies, right? And the strongest individuals, the, the, the greatest ones have come out of strong communities, whether it's the Athenian polis, as flawed as that was, or the medieval town, town hall kind of thing, or, or the, the ethnic neighborhoods of, of New York, which was something that Bookchin knew quite well. The individuals that came out of that were just stronger, more psychologically self-aware, more in tune with the world than people that come out of a hyper, like almost solipsistic kind of existence we have in late capitalism, right? And of course, late capitalism is not a concept Zora Neale Hurston's at all thinking about here, but she is saying something that strikes me here, and that is the individual and the collective are one and the same. And that individualism that's expressed in the shout comes out of a collective experience of, of worship, right? And the same thing, that collective experience of worship wouldn't exist without these individual voices being part of it. And I think that's a very, very important way of looking at it. So anyways, um, good stuff here in her, her contributions to this anthology called Negro um, and Anthology. That was published, these were all published in 1934. So next we have uh, a, a bunch of essays, four of them five of them, sorry, called Works in Progress for, for, uh, let me make sure I get the title right here. Works in Progress for the Florida Negro. I guess that was a newspaper or something, um, but it came out of the the Florida Writers Project. So they're called Works in Progress. So I guess these were never fully published. Let me double check. Okay, here's what it says. Uh, Folklore and Music, Negro Mythical Places, The Sanctified Church, The Oxy Riot, these are the, 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 the essays here. We're all written for the Florida Negro, a project that was never completed during the time Hurston worked for the Federal Writers Project in Florida in 1938. Um, the text printed here from typescripts in the Florida Historical Society. So these are just drafts of, of, of a book that was being put together by the Florida Writers Project. Um, and they were first published by Henry Louis Gates in Reading Black, Reading Feminist, a critical anthology in 1990. Um, so there you have it. Um, so these are, if, if you're a Zora Neale Hurston completist, if you want to, you know, know everything she wrote, you got to look at it. Now, the first article called Folklore and Music, actually all of this stuff, I don't want to say it rehashes stuff in Mules and Men. Of course, Mules and Men was written and published earlier than this, but they kind of could be an alternative. If you didn't want to read Mules and Men, you could read these articles and get many of the same feel and the stories. Um, you know, it's kind of has that same uh, kind of structure where it's Zora Neale Hurston kind of just matter-of-factly collecting these stories that she's, she's heard. It's a little bit more presented in the form of academic uh, ethnography, uh, which Mills and Men isn't. Mills and Men is more of like a memoir switched 
intertwined with the folklore here it's a little bit more academic-y a little bit more straight you know what you'd expect from a folklore um a book of folk folklore and i think that's maybe what she was going at or what the, the florida negro book was what they wanted out of zora hurston's contribution was to talk about that um you know i there's a section here that's really really interesting called the mythical negro mythical places and this is negro mythical places both cosmic and in Florida. And that's and sometimes there's this connection between cosmic places and, you know, and real physical places in America, and particularly in Florida. But even though they seem to be grounded in... I mean, here's what she says about it. Negroes, like all other ethnographic groups, ethnological groups, have their mythical cities and places. Those mentioned here are well known in Florida as well as in other states. So these are what are popular in Florida, right? So Diddy Wa Diddy, that's the name of a place, Diddy Wa Diddy. This is the largest and best known of the Negro mythical places. Its geography is that of way off somewhere. It's reached by a road that curves so much that a mule pulling a wagon full of fodder can eat off the back of the wagon as he goes. It's a place of no work and no worry for man and beast. So it's the, the big rock candy mountain in a way, right? There's no work. Florida, African-American Floridians version of Big Rock Candy Mountain, maybe. Um, what else we have here I want to talk about? Um, the Sanctified Church. This is interesting. She does talk about kind of new religious movements here as part of, of looking at the black experience in Florida. And in this essay, it's called The Sanctified Church. And here she says... The Sanctified Church is a protest against the high bro tendency of Negro Protestant congregations. As the Negroes gain more education and wealth, it is understandable that they take this religious attitude of the white man, which is the rule so staid and restricted that it seems unbearably dull to the more primitive Negro who associates the rhythm of sound and motion with religion. In fact, the Negro has not been Christianized extensively as generally believed. The great masses are still standing before their pagan altars and calling old gods by new names. She goes on about that. So there's a... Again, this is something that's very much on Zora Neale Hurston's mind throughout her work, and that is growing tension between a black middle class and, and the working class, the one she hangs out with, the people. Um, although she sarcastically talks about my people, my people, and dust tracks them on, on a road, she very much is kind of more sympathetic with the lower classes. And here we see this drive to create new churches by the middle class, to kind of get away from a more vulgar black churches that emerged out of slavery and out of the Civil War. So, um, yeah, really interesting stuff. I think if you want a supplement to Mules and Men, or if you want an alternative to Mules and Men, I think these essays are great. But I don't think you can get them any places. you got to go to Henry Louis Gates' anthology, book on uh, black writing and black feminism, the one I mentioned, or go here, because I, I don't... As far as I know, they haven't been published anywhere anywhere else. All right, next, all right, we got a one-page review of Richard Wright's Uncle Tom's Children. Uh, this was published in the Saturday Review in 1938. Zora Neale Hurston did not like this book at all. Um, she thinks it gets the dialect wrong. She, she thinks it's... I, I think she doesn't like this really bleak, negative view of the South. She says it's straight up. Uh, that the, the the reader sees the picture of the South that the communists have been pushing around of late—a dismal, hopeless section ruled by brutish hatred and nothing else. 
Richard Wright's author, Richard Wright's author solution is a solution of the party, state responsibility for everything. So I haven't yet looked at Richard Wright really that seriously. I've you know I've read a little bit of his stuff, but Zora Neale Hurston's not impressed with. That. I think that's one of his first novels, 1938. Um, they are in the Library of America, so I probably should look at them at some point. But I don't own those volumes. Um, next we have the Pet Negro System. This was published in the American Mercury in 1943. And here she's just dealing with the representation of black people in the South in general. And just like with Richard Wright's, her review of Richard Wright's Uncle Tom's Children, she's not happy with kind of a, a unitary view. But this time she's, I mean, she's kind of criticizing two. One is the, the pet Negro, the like the educated good, good Negro who's not too much of a troublemaker, who's part of this broader kind of New South coalition going to lead to some kind of overall progress um and the on the other hand is just like poverty degradation sharecropping shacks that kind of image of the poor black southerner um and she has problems with both of them here and she thinks they they just don't accurately represent the south she thinks the south and black life in the south is much more complex and rich and and nuanced than than most media depictions give but at the same time she's she's doesn't want to be uh she doesn't want to kind of lump you know any kind of interracial i won't it was a solidarity but interracial just cooperation or coexistence as she doesn't want to just throw that on so all oh, those are just that's those are just pet negroes she doesn't want to do that either she thinks there's a legitimate space for for that kind of friendship even um, so anyway, she thinks this is bad for both sides and bad for any kind of progress in the, in the South. She kind of sums up her problem with it. Um, and here I will use, I'll, I'll just, I'll just use the N word cause she uses it here. Um, cause it kind of, it kind of makes the point, um, quote friendship. However, it comes about as a beautiful thing. The Negro who loves a white friend is shy in admitting it because he dreads the epitaph white folks, nigger. The white man is wary of showing too much warmth for his black friends for fear of being called a nigger lover. So he explains his attachment by extolling the extraordinary merits of his black friend to gain tolerance for it. And that's that. Okay, looking ahead. This one I'll read entirely because, again, it's just like one page. This was published in the Negro Digest in June 1944. It's called My Most Humiliating Jim Crow Experience because I'm, I'm quite interested in her attitude about Jim Crow and her views on it, so... It's worth reading this whole little essay and then maybe saying a few words about it. Um, my most humiliating Jim Crow experience came in New York instead of the South, as one would have expected. It was in 1931 when Mrs. R. Osgood Mason was financing my research in anthropology. I'd returned to New York from the Bahama Islands ill with some disturbances of the digestive tract. Godmother, Mrs. Mason liked for me to call her godmother, became concerned about my condition and suggested a certain white specialist at her expense. The office was in Brooklyn. Mr. Paul Chapin came in and made an appointment for me. The doctor told the wealthy and prominent Paul Chapin that I would get the best of care. So two days later, I journeyed to Brooklyn and submitted myself to the care of this great specialist. His reception room was more than swanky with a magnificent hammered copper door, the other decor of the same plane as the door. But his receptionist was obviously embarrassed when I showed up. I mentioned the appointment and got inside the door. She went into a private office and stayed a few minutes. Then the doctor appeared in the door, all in white, looking very important. 
and very unhappy from behind his rough stomach, round stomach. He did not approach me at all, but told me, told one of his nurses to take me into a private examination room. The room was private, all right, but I would not rate it highly as an examination room. Under any circumstances, I would have sworn it was a closet where the soiled towels and uniforms were tossed until called for by the laundry. But I'll say this for it, that there was a chair there wedged in between the wall and a pile of soaked linen. The nurse took me in there, closed the door quickly, and disappeared. The doctor came in immediately and began in a desultory manner to ask me about my symptoms. It was evident that he meant to get me off the premises as quickly as possible. Being the sort of objective person I am, I did not get up and sweep out angrily as I was first disposed to do. I stayed to see just what would happen and further to torture him more. He went through some motions, stuck a tube down my throat to extract some bile from my gallbladder, wrote a prescription, and asked for $20 as a fee. I got up, set my hair in a reckless angle, and walked out, telling him that I would send him a check, which I never did. I went away feeling the pathos of Anglo-Saxon civilization. And I still mean pathos, for I know that anything of such a false foundation cannot last. Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad. I mean, the fact that that's humiliating, I don't think we have to comment too much on. It, it certainly would have been. Of course, it takes place in the North, so, you know, it's a common thing in her work that this North isn't that much better than the South in, in terms of the color line and the treatment of, of black people. Uh, of course, this is going to be a very important theme in black writing in the late 60s and 70s after the successes of the Civil Rights Movement. But... Her, fin her final feelings about this are just kind of, you know, how pathetic white civilization has sort of become in its, in its obsession over the color line. Uh, next, she's got The Rise of the Begging Joints. This one's brutal. Um, it's in the, it was published in the American Mercury in March 1945. And yes, it is quite uh, a harsh uh, opinion piece. Not really an expose or anything, but it's an opinion piece about... Not just universities and colleges, but that's kind of where she's thinking about. I mean, she calls them begging joints. She she thinks these these African American institutions, in the way they, you know, thinking of that previous article she wrote about the, um, what was it the, the pet Negro system, right? That these universities sort of become an adjunct of that pet Negro system, and and they end up, you know, getting money from white people, right? And someone who believes in self-governance, individualism, ability to take care of themselves as a community or as individuals, she's fairly disgusted by the plethora of institutions drawing money from, from white donors. Um, she even has some kind of nasty words for Booker T. Washington, who I think she did respect. Um, but here's what she says about him. Then the Do Something for My People era came in on the trillion clouds of Booker T. Washington. He was responsible, but did not mean any harm. Tuskegee was a success with tycoons of industry and finance rolling down in their private cars to see and be awed. They saw Booker T. Washington as the Moses of his race. They donated millions to give body to the idea of Booker T. So in the black world, the man was magical. He sat with presidents, he went abroad, and stood with kings. The school founding thing was something. With it, without, without the genius of his idea and the surprise of the newness, hundreds of other Negroes deserted pulpits, plows, washtubs, cookpots, and went out founding schools. The outer offices of the financiers began to be haunted by people doing something for my people. There remained only one Tuskegee. But then there was only one Booker T. Washington, end quote. Yeah, not too hard on Booker T. Washington, but more hard on his emulators, those who, who seek out 
ways to get money, begging for money, as she puts it, um, from these white donors, rather than actually trying to achieve some self-help. So, yeah, pretty harsh. I don't know how people who maybe graduated from some of those schools would have felt reading an article like this. But, yeah, I mean, she kind of... I mean, she's not a nationalist, right? She, she rejects this kind of racial solidarity, racial pride stuff. But there is kind of that, right, self-rule self aspect. You know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps kind of idea. She seems to get that from Booker T. Washington. But Booker T. Washington got funding from these corporate donors as well. Uh, another essay she wrote in 1945 in the Negro Digest in December 1945 is called Crazy for this Democracy. And this is just a, this is kind of feeds off of the double V argument, um, but she has kind of a global context here. So the double V was victory over fascism abroad, victory over Jim Crow at home, right? And she does say Jim Crow has to go, um, you know, and she, but she ties it very interestingly to the global struggle against colonialism. Right, she's you know the American soldiers. This is according to her. American soldiers and sailors are fighting along with the French, Dutch, and English to rivet these chains back on their former slaves. She's talking about colonies here, and that's obviously what happened. Um, now, eventually, of course, these empires were overthrown or, or given up by the Europeans. But yes, that was the immediate one of the immediate results of the end of World War II was the reshackling of 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 empires that were disrupted by the war itself. Java is is talked about quite a lot here. Um, but, of course, whatever the U.S. has to say about, and this is what she comments here, but it's obvious, whatever the U.S. had to say about democracy and ending empire is kind of hypocrisy, hypocritical in the context of, of Jim Crow. Uh, but she's got a great little interpretation here of Jim Crow because she did talk before about how, you know, many people found in Jim Crow you know, some economic potential, right? Like, I like remember there was that, I think I talked about it last episode or two ago, where people, you know, who worked in businesses catering to white patrons or others who would cater to black patrons, that was their job, right? And their livelihood was built into the fabric of Jim Crow. It's not saying they were for it in any way, but it was hard for them to conceive of, their life, their day-to-day -day life outside of that. Still, she thinks this needs to go. She needs, it needs to go, obviously, because, quote, these Jim Crow laws have been put on the books for a purpose, and that purpose is psychological. It has two edges to the thing. By physical evidence, back seats and trains, back doors of houses, exclusion from certain places and activities, to promote in the minds of the smallest white child the conviction of first by blood, internal and irrevocable, irrevocable like the places assigned to the Levites by Moses. No one of darker skin could ever be considered an equal, seeing the daily humiliations of the darker people confirm the child of his superiority. So, obviously. So she's calling for the end of Jim Crow, um, for the benefit of the nation and the world. All right, let's talk about the last one. Right, there's a few I skipped here, you know, maybe two or three I didn't say too much about. But this last one is kind of important, because I think this is her last published work. Um, and it's just a newspaper editorial. Published in Orlando Sentinel, August 11th, 1955. So Ernell Hurston dies in... Sorry, I should have wrote this stuff down before. 1960... Yeah, 1960. 
Okay. So this is when she's already kind of entered into obscurity. She's not publishing in the American Mercury or the Negro Digest or these kind of newspapers or journals anymore. She's publishing just a letter to the editor and the Orlando Sentinel. That's her audience. Um, here's what the, the editors of this volume say. The editor. Uh, 1955 writes a letter to the Orlando Sentinel in August condemning the 1954 Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education, which ruled segregated schools unconstitutional. Hurston criticizes the court's implication that black children could learn only when they went to school with whites. Right. So we've just seen her, you know, 10, day, 10 years earlier saying Jim Crow's got to go. So this isn't a defense of segregation as such, but rather, uh, and there she's, she's really specifying not black institutions, not black schools, not black universities, even though, you know, she has problems with them as begging joints. She's not criticizing those as such. She's criticizing the daily humiliation of segregation, right? The back of the bus, the back door to the buildings, this, you know, you can't eat together, you know, the horrible bathrooms, all that stuff, right? And she says here there are plenty of good schools for black people to study at where they'll have black teachers. And essentially what desegregation would do, in her view here, um, would ensure that black teachers would be out of jobs and that black students would only learn from white teachers. And she actually brings up Indians here early in the passage. It's like, you know, you wouldn't say to Indians on, you know, on a reservation somewhere that, you know, they could only learn from white teachers. I mean, that was the whole boarding school thing, right? Um, so, and she does make that explicit comparison here. Maybe she doesn't talk directly about boarding schools. But she says, certainly he fought invalently for his land, and rightfully so, but it is inconceivable of an Indian to seek forcible association with anyone. His well-known pride and self-respect would save him from that. I take the Indian position. So she, you know, she doesn't quite get into the school issue, although it's kind of right there in my mind when I read this. Um, what else does she, her other problem with this, and the name of this editorial, by the way, is called The Court Order Can't Make Races Mix. I don't know if that was her or the copy editors at the Orlando Sentinel that put that there, but her other point was that this is just government heavy-handedness rather than kind of a bottom-up change that she would be more sympathetic to. Quote, um, well, no, that, that, I'll just say that. She, she kind of compares it to communism and authoritarian. In fact, she directly says this is just as bad as the evils of communism. Um, which I don't know if I agree with, <laughs> to be honest, but uh, this is her point of view. Um, but here's what she says about kind of the race thing, because I think that's the most important part of this. Um, I regard the ruling of the Supreme Court as an insulting rather as insulting rather than honoring my race. Since the days of the never-too-sufficiently-deplored Reconstruction, there have been current the belief that no greater delight to Negroes than physical association with the whites. The doctrine of the white mare. Those familiar with the habits of mules are aware that any mule, if not restrained, will automatically follow a white mare. Dishonest mule traders make money out of this knowledge in the olden days. Now, this this phrase, the never to be sufficiently deplored reconstruction. I, I don't know if she's being sarcastic here, to be honest. I, at the time... Reconstruction was being deplored by most writers, most historical writers. It's not till the 50s. Maybe at this time you start to get some reinterpretation. Of course, you have Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, which he must have been aware of, which is was the first 
really positive interpretation of Reconstruction to come out of historical writing. Mostly, though, it was pretty negative. So I don't know if she's making fun of the fact that the Reconstruction becomes this uh, whipping dog of, whipping boy of, of historiography at the time. And she's saying, actually, one, uh, one thing that comes out of Reconstruction are black institutions. Again, these are things that are in my head, but not really explicitly drawn out on, on, on the paper here. But anyways, uh, an important essay to look at, I think, just not only as, as her latest writing, uh, at least one of her latest published writings, you know, it's, you know, it's part of her legacy. And what, you know, most people see Brown versus Board of Education in, in, a, in a positive light and, and for good reasons. But, you know, they're, 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 that wasn't the only point of view. And it's not, let's go back to Jim Crow, or Jim Crow's a good thing. That's not what she's defending. She's, I think she's defending the creation of black institutions and, and the right to associate with who you want to. And all this, I think, goes back to her earliest days of, of being an all-black community and seeing black self-governance from her earliest days. I think that's a key to her perspective. So anyways, that... That's seven episodes. So over the past seven episodes, I've given you some of uh, my thoughts, a little bit of introduction to Zora Neale Hurston's nonfiction writing, uh, Mules and Men, Tell My Horse, Dust Tracks on the Road, and, and some of her assorted essays and articles. Um, I think it's worth looking at this stuff, at least some of it, sampling a little bit of it. If you've read her, non her fiction and you haven't read the nonfiction, I think check it out. If um, And someday I will try to say something about her her fiction. I think some of it's actually quite interesting. I've read it before, but I'm I'm really kind of waiting for an audiobook. If I can get a hold of an audiobook of at least their eyes were watching God. Maybe one or two of the others. There's four novels in that in that volume. I might come back to it, but you know, it's not public domain stuff yet, so LibriVox hasn't produced any. And so anyways, moving on. So next up I'll be looking at the Oregon Trail by Francis um, Francis Parkman, uh, one of America's earliest professional historians. Um, so that'll be it. We'll be talking about Indians and the Oregon Trail in the West in, in, the, in the early 18, 19th century. But anyways, if you have any thoughts at all about Zora Neale Hurston's writings in total, if you have any thoughts about my series on women's writers, I've been doing it for quite a while now, since summer, basically, or even before summer, uh, let me know what you think. Please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and that'll be it for now. I'm going to sign off. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. And I'll see you next time with the first part of what's going to be a very, very long series on the works of Francis Parkman Jr. See you then. it must be the hellfire captain. Anna told her, must have been the hellfire captain. Ha, he had blue eyes. Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Oh, don't you hear them? A cuckoo bird.